What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 135. Today we are here with another episode of Crime Tober for you guys, and we are looking at the 1991 unsolved Austin yogurt shop murders. And this one is pretty dark, pretty intense. So buckle in. It's pretty crazy. It is, and it's unbelievable that it's still unsolved to this day, technically. Yeah. I mean, you would think with, you know, it wasn't that long ago. If you think about it, 20 years or so is mm-hmm. really not that long ago no. for, you know, there's still technology and things like that. DNA profiling has been done in this case. And still, we don't know for sure who committed these yogurt shop murders. It's actually a really crazy story. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there is over uh, 50 false confessions in this case. So, which is just always, yeah. One. Today's episode is brought to you by Upstart Native HelloFresh features and Zebit, which is awesome. Thank you guys for sponsoring the show. We also got a couple very, very interesting news stories for you that happened this past week. So let's go ahead and dive into the first one. So uh, I can't believe that this is still happening, but I guess I, I get why they're doing this. But at the same time, I'm very nervous by what they're doing. Well, tell them what it is. Well, in Egypt, they found 59 sealed sarcophagi. And this past weekend or so on Saturday, October 3rd, archaeologists opened up, started unsealing uh, the sarcophagi, opening up the first one, which made its rounds on, you know, social media and stuff with a video of them opening it up. If you're watching, we'll, we'll play the, the video of it. But this is a, a little bit concerning. I mean, the bodies within these sarcophagi are basically Egyptian priests who were buried over 2,500 years ago. So I I just, this is my main thing. My first thought with this story is people, you know, archaeologists in Egypt, they should know about the history of Egyptians Mm -hmm. and, you know, their culture and everything. And I'm surprised that they don't take it more seriously. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. it seems like everybody's forgotten about the fact that they, you know, a lot of times Egypt, you know, ancient Egyptians, especially pharaohs and, you know, religious leaders like priests, Mm -hmm. you know, would actually place curses on their, you know, sarcophagi so that anybody that would open it up, you know, would suffer the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we did a whole episode on King Tut and the, the curse, curse of, the, of the mummy or whatever. So the Pharaoh. the Pharaoh. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm very worried. Yeah, I am too. And it seems like 2020 is a bad year for this shit. Like we're really going to try messing around with coffins now. It just seems like a bad time. Like so many bad things have happened. And remember that trumpet was played. When was that played? Like right before this year started. Yep. Yep. They played a trumpet that was found. Yeah. That was specifically like cursed. I feel like. Was it that one? Yeah. Yeah. It it was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was like, do not play this trumpet. And of course they played the trumpet and, and we're in some shit now. We've had a lot of shit unfold. And I don't know. You may not believe in that, but a lot of people do. And either way, it's just so disrespectful. I don't understand well, they're doing it because yeah. they are so in Egypt right now, they're doing this big museum uh, right at the foot of the Giza pyramids on the Giza plateau. They're building mm-hmm. this huge Egyptian museum, which will be cool because there's yeah. going to be a lot of cool stuff in it. But at the same time, I just feel like there's always this worry. I feel like if especially if you are kind of like us and you believe in mysticism and and magic a little bit and, you know, you study these ancient cultures and you, you really start looking at how spiritual they were and how connected they were to the other side and, and how, how much knowledge they, they had and yeah, how seriously they took it. Exactly. So it's like, should we be messing with that? Should we be 
you know, in order for us to just, you know, walk through a museum and, you know, look through at some glass at these mummies, like, Mm-hmm. Should we be disturbing them from where they thought was their final resting place? Well, it's also for education too. I mean, it's not just for people to see, you know, to their credit, a lot of them are trying to learn more about these cultures. And if we didn't dig up anything, we wouldn't know as much as we have right now, you know, which isn't even that much as it is. But yeah. for me, I feel like, and I think a lot of people would agree that a lot of this is for tourism for money. Oh no, I completely agree with you. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Sure. Here. Yeah, no. Um, and, but and, I think we should not have opened this and I really hate how they're doing this out in the open. I thought they would do this in a hospital somewhere, you know, or like a sealed room with a few experts and it's super sanitary. What's up with all these cameras and people and phones and it's in the middle of the coronavirus. I mean, I guess we don't have to worry about infecting the mummy, but <laughs> I don't understand why it's, it looks like a bunch of paparazzi. Imagine if you're the person in this coffin, not that they can see it, but maybe they can from the other side. Who knows? Maybe their spirit is looking down on this. Like what the fuck people are opening their coffin and there's a bunch of pictures being taken. It goes viral. Yeah. And it seems like the general, uh, you know, feedback from the internet has been bad. Most people are like, why are we still doing this? It's so disrespectful. And I think the way that they're doing it too, like I said, it's just, it's so exploitive. It um, really is. So yeah. I, I well, think, it's for media attention. I mean, uh-huh. they flat out said that, you know, this is all going to be in the museum. So, you know, they're trying to get people to come back to mm-hmm. Egypt and, you know, drive the economy and stuff, which I get, you know, obviously your, your history of your country is a huge part of your, your tourism. I mean, that's yeah. the same way for many countries out but there at the expense of ancestors. Right. Exactly. Know. Maybe that won't go so well. I just future, feel like, like karma. I mean, I think about that type of stuff and I would take that seriously. Well, how much is there to learn from a 2,500 year old, like car, you know, basically mummy mummified body. Like, well, I'm sure there's a lot to learn. If there is an archeologist here, they'd probably be like, there's quite a bit you can. Well, yeah, but I it. mean, we've already, how many mummies have we cracked open but over they're the all years from different times and they were different styles and we learn new things all the time. My thing is, is just like, I think as an archaeologist, you would have more respect for the ancient cultures and I agree and the ancient texts and you would understand that part of this is not disturbing it. And there's a reason why, you know, they're buried with all these things and they're, you know, put in these tombs, not so that we can go dig them out and open them up and then put them on display. Like it's the, the circus or something like, yeah, there needs to be, yeah, there's needs to be more respect there Mm because They, you know, if anything, maybe leave them in their resting place and bring people to it and allow them to view it from, I don't know, (laughs) they're all going to end up cursed then. Well, uh, but maybe the whole, you know, maybe the entire tomb's not cursed. I mean, that's the thing is like, I think opening the physical action of opening a mummy out of their sarcophagus Mm -hmm. is there's something wrong with that. In my opinion, I completely agree with you. And I think unfortunately a lot of these archeologists and probably not all of them, but they're, you know, there's always good and bad people out there. I think a lot of them are in it obviously for the money and they've completely separated the fact that these were spiritual people. And yeah. I think they see them just as archaic and anything they believe is kind of, you know, bullshit yeah. anyway. And well, yeah, not, I mean, you know, I'm sure a lot of them don't believe in the curse or think it's stupid. And no, I would say probably the majority, especially of the Egyptian antiquities department. I mean, we've talked about, you know, different theories about how the pyramids were built and stuff. And, most of the people that work in the government entities within Egypt completely don't even consider the fact that there could have been external forces or, you know, something beyond our understanding that technology even 
that the ancient Egyptians had in order to help them build the pyramids. You know, a lot of them fall in line with kind of that mainstream narrative of, you know, it was mm-hmm. the Egyptians and they had sleds and ramps, whatever. And they, you know, drug these giant stones across the desert and up, up the sides of these pyramids and built these pyramids, which could have happened. I'm not saying, I don't know. I mean, it could have happened, mm-hmm. but I just feel like there's, as a whole, a lack of respect for ancient cultures and ancient history just across the world. Even, even, even in other countries, I feel like, you know, there's a reason why these people followed these ideas and rituals and there's a reason for it. I don't think it's just all made up bullshit because they didn't know anything else. They didn't understand science or whatever. You know, people are always like, Oh, they didn't know the science that we know now. So obviously all their beliefs and their, you know, belief systems were bullshit, but I think a lot of people think old equals stupid. Right. And what I've learned is that that's the opposite. Mm -hmm. I I think what we should be doing is returning to these, you know, ancient cultures and civilizations and really taking a look at their belief systems and maybe trying to modernize them and try to figure out maybe there's still some connection there between, Mm -hmm. you know, our world and their world. I think there is. Um, I always forget how to pronounce this. I think it's Ayurvedic medicine. Are, am I saying that right? I don't know. Um, but sounds, their whole close, medical yeah. system is very interesting. And I think a lot of people could benefit from learning about that and their body types. Um, it's like dosha, pita, and I can't even remember the other one. Um, but yeah, there's so many things that we can learn from them and that they were doing that we might be doing in a, shittier way than they were you know yeah like i don't know why we cancel out especially because they were doing that for so long longer than we've been doing anything you know they've been following certain rituals and um had certain beliefs for over thousands of years versus you know how however long we've been yeah i mean i think it's really interesting, like the whole idea of, of philosophy and like, you know, we look at the ancient Egyptians philosophy on life and we're like, oh, that's antiquated and, and old. It's not relevant to now. And we turn to science. So, you know, so often to get, provide us answers to life and the universe and, you know, what we're doing here and stuff. And yet I, I oftentimes, you know, go back to, you know, if you've ever looked into her, her medicism, um, you know, and Thoth and all of that. If you've ever looked into Thoth's prophecies and things like that, he was a hu- huge part of Egypt and there's tons of stuff with that. That's, a, that's another episode. But if you look at that and you look at the philosophies they had about life and the universe and universal laws and things like that, and you, you find a way to apply that to your life. Now I see so much truth and so much knowledge that they had that I think because of the way it was written and just, you know, the time we can't fully understand it unless you really like dive into it. Mm -hmm. And so we just kind of dismiss it as, okay, this was the past. This is old. This is ancient. There's no relevance here. I mean, we just have so much ego. We think we know everything now and everyone before us. Well, and it's just like, and that's how scientists and most archeologists are, is they're like, we only know what we can prove. And then everything Mm -hmm. else doesn't exist is not, you know, there's no truth to it whatsoever. It's all fables. Yeah. I wonder what they would think about that curse of the Pharaoh because they say it's bullshit. You Google, there's a lot of people that died. So it's can't just be bullshit. Yeah. Maybe it is. I I, I worry though, especially opening, you know, coffins of Egyptian priests, spiritual leaders and stuff. I'm like, Ooh, yeah, dude, be careful. This is not the year to do it. And I definitely wouldn't be this guy leaning over the mummy's body with no mask on. 
What are you doing, dude? That's so gross. Just like touching it. And it's like, this has literally been like that for 2,500 years plus. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near this. Ugh. So it's, it's, it's a cool discovery in the sense that we're finding more and more. And I mean, it's because they're building more and more uh, around the pyramids and they're excavating more. So they're going to, of course, find more, you know, artifacts and sarcophagi and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I definitely worry about, you know, what's to come. And, you know, I don't know if there'll be a way to prove any correlation between opening of, of mummies to what's happening in the world. But in my opinion, I think we should be careful and leave them alone. I agree. Let us know what you guys think in the comments. So the next story we got for you is about a group of individuals who were recently arrested for an alleged domestic terrorism plot to kidnap Michigan's governor, Gretchen Whitmer. The reason why we're hearing about this now is because the FBI has actually been doing an ongoing investigation on this particular group uh, of people who are definitely against the Democratic governor. They're not fans of her whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're very upset with her about how she's been handling the pandemic in Michigan. And one of the specific reasons for disliking her so much is because they didn't like how she was controlling the opening and closing of gyms. Oh my God. It's a bunch of guys, basically a bunch of guys in this group and they have uh, extremist views about politics and things like that. They're definitely on one side and their scheme allegedly included plans to overthrow several state governments that the suspects believe were violating the U S constitution, including the government of Michigan and Whitmer. And the FBI became aware of it in early 2020 through a social media group of these individuals. And they basically planted an informant into the group. And this informant started gathering all the information, recording audio conversations that they were having. And their plans were pretty crazy. That's for sure. So during one of the audio recorded conversations, one of the leaders of this group allegedly said he needed 200 men to storm the Capitol building in Lansing and take hostages, including Governor Whitmer. Did he actually collect 200 men? They had a they had a pretty large group of people. I don't know the exact number that they had, but Damn. that was their goal. They were in the process of planning this, coordinating it, and Jeez. basically they wanted to take the governor hostage and then try her for treason, which to me in their own little trial doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Dude, these people need help. This is so ridiculous. I'm surprised this doesn't happen more often though. There's so many, you know, people like this on both sides, just extremist that yeah, I'm surprised this doesn't happen in politics more often. Yeah. Or maybe it does, but the FBI just, you know, doesn't, there could be ongoing investigations yeah. on many groups out yeah. there that they just haven't shared yet. There could be a reason they wanted to tell us about this one specifically, or maybe the, the government wanted to talk about it, which she did. Yeah. She spoke about it. She knew like about it. Yeah. Cause yeah. she knew that this was happening. For she knew the mm-hmm. threat was there. The FBI obviously told her about it. And cause they were watching her for a while. Yeah. They, they would go to her house. vacation homes and stuff. Oh they were God. stalking her pretty much. I mean, they were, they were getting very close to, I mean, their plan was to do this before the elections in November Damn, to actually carry out their plan. So they were getting very close to actually putting this plan into motion uh, to some extent. I think there is still some, you know, things they're still trying to figure out according to the informant, but mm-hmm. But basically we heard about it because they went and arrested 13 different people 
uh, four and six are wow. being charged with uh, conspiracy to kidnap. Wow. Damn. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm surprised that no one's ever successfully pulled anything like that off. As far as I know, mm-hmm. maybe there have been. Yeah. Like history. a politician being kidnapped. I mean, not in America hostage. that I know of. Yeah. 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 It's kind of surprising, honestly, because like governors are, I mean, they have security and stuff, but they're not like, they don't have secret service at right. their house and stuff like the president does or, you know, other higher so. ranking leaders in the, the federal government. So it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting. And apparently these guys are associated with a group called Wolverine Watchmen um, is what oh they're called. God. Yeah. Wolverine Watchmen. So, yeah. It's crazy. That, I mean, there's still the malicious. wolf pack. <laughs> <laughs> the wolf pack. Yeah. That is ridiculous. So the Michigan attorney general actually said something pretty interesting. They said the individuals in state custody are suspected to have attempted to identify the home addresses of law enforcement officers in order to target them, made threats of violence intended to instigate a civil war and engaged in planning and training for an operation to attack the Capitol building of Michigan and to kidnap government officials, including the governor of Michigan. That was all information they obtained through this informant who infiltrated their group and of course they're on yeah. you know facebook talking about this right and like, like how active. seriously are you gonna go yeah it's just like if Do you got these war. crazy plans why are you putting out on social media like that's the last place that- I, I mean damn we just were talking on the sesh if you haven't watched our new podcast me and janelle she doesn't have a mic today because it's broken or it can't the camera's broken something's broken Um, So she can't chime in, but we did an episode on the social dilemma and we talked a lot about um, people being so extreme on both sides that were like headed towards a civil war. Well, I I think there's just, I mean, I think a lot of the division is the media's fault too, you know, like the media and just the internet in general and, you know, people being able to anonymously attack other people online about your beliefs or whatever. And, Mm -hmm it's created the internet and social media has created so much division within our world that mm-hmm. people, you know, with differing beliefs can't even have a face to face conversation anymore. Cause it's right. just, it's so toxic. It's, really, it's really, really bad. Really it's toxic. just like, it's gotten so bad, but what would it get to a point where we'd take up arms and yeah. just start like attacking each other? Right. Like we're fighting on the internet from our couches and you it's know? like, is it really going to, are enough people going to actually be able to make the whole country get into a civil war. No. Do enough people care outside of their day-to-day life to like want to fight for their country or fight for their side? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think enough. There's some people, but is it going to be, I don't know. I'd like to know people's thoughts on that. Cause that's been something that I've seen floating around a lot lately is the idea that we're like martial law yeah. is enacted. And it's or yeah, like, maybe something like that. Yeah. Let's get into our topic. We've rambled enough during these topics. Yes. Let's go ahead and get into the yogurt shop murder case. But before we do, we'd like to thank our first sponsors for today. Okay. So the yogurt shop murders, this case takes place in the early 1990s in Austin, Texas, which at the time was a relatively small college town and violent crime was pretty rare. Parents didn't think twice about their young teenage girls being out on their own or even working and closing a store by themselves late at night. This just wasn't something that people were thinking about. Austin is the state capital. It's located in Travis County in central Texas. And in 1991, it had just over 475,000 residents compared to the population of over 2 million today. It's gotten very popular. There were two 17-year-old girls who were best friends, and they were named Eliza Thomas and Jennifer Harbison. 
They were working at a small yogurt shop in the North Cross Mall. And this was a strip mall in Austin. And the shop was called I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. It's kind of like I Can't Believe It's Butter. It's not butter. Oh, yeah. The whole thing. <laughs> it's not butter, right? I don't even know if that was around back then. Maybe. I think it was. It's been around a long time. I feel like I can't really? believe it's not butter. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. They've had that a long time. So on Friday, December 6, 1991, Eliza and Jennifer were working the night shift together at the yogurt shop. Jennifer's sister was 15-year-old Sarah Harbison, and that night she was hanging out with her friend, 13-year-old Amy Ayers. Sarah and Amy had planned to head to the shop later, and then the four girls were going to have a sleepover that night. The girls had met through Future Farmers of America, which is an organization that supports agricultural education. And the girls all raised farm animals and spent a lot of time together at FFA events. And Jennifer and Sarah were very close sisters. Jennifer had recently graduated and was a member of the track team. She had a pet cat that she adored. She loved to hang out with her friends, and she also enjoyed spending time with her boyfriend. Sarah was very active. She played volleyball, basketball, and she was a junior varsity cheerleader. As a freshman, she was also on student council, so she was pretty busy. Eliza was a senior and an active member of the Catholic Church, and she was also really close with her sister, Sonora. Amy was the youngest of the four. She was in eighth grade and had begun riding horses from a very young age. She loved animals and she loved country music. So between 930 and 10 o'clock that evening, a man named Daryl Croft came into the yogurt shop with a few friends. I have never seen Daryl spelled that way. Yeah, it's D-E-A-R-L. It's like Daryl. Dear L. Yeah. Daryl. Is that how you say it? Or is it Daryl? Daryl. Not Daryl. I don't know. Maybe it is Daryl. Daryl. I don't know. The world we never know. Yeah. Daryl. So Daryl was a former military policeman. And in the early 90s, he owned a security company and he drove a car with lights on top that looked like the lights on police cars. You know, a lot of security Mm -hmm. people drive cars that look similar to cop cars. And when he pulled up, a man inside the shop noticed the car and seemed agitated by it. He had been telling other customers to go ahead of him in line and waited for Daryl to come in. The man approached Daryl and asked him if he was a cop pointing at his car according to daryl he was wearing an army fatigue jacket and he was relatively young and had a deep voice and a large nose at this particular time there were also two other young couples in the shop but none of the customers seemed to know who this man was and when asked if he was a cop daryl answered no i'm not a cop and the man told him to go ahead of him in line daryl politely declined though And this man then went to the counter and ordered a can of Coke and then walked around the counter to the back of the store. Very odd. Mm -hmm. To order a soda too at a yogurt shop. That's kind of a strange thing to go into a yogurt shop to get. Yeah. Like unless you're with kids or something and they're getting that and you just order a soda. It's kind of strange. Yeah. It's very, very strange. Daryl then stepped up to the counter to order. Eliza was waiting at the register and he asked her where that man had gone. She said she had let him go in the bathroom, which is in the back of the store. And I I think Daryl's kind of police senses and his experience was kind of, you know, giving him some intuition that something wasn't quite right about his interaction with this man. Mm -hmm. He then waited to see if he would return from the bathroom. But after a few minutes, he decided to leave. An older couple came into the yogurt shop after Daryl left. And when they were in the shop, they noticed two men sitting together in a booth. One of the men had lighter hair and was in his late 20s or early 30s and was about five foot six. The other man was bigger and both men had oversized coats with them. 
And these men also seemed agitated, just like that other man. And they were acting a bit strangely. The older woman felt uneasy and the couple left shortly after arriving around 1045. Which this is a pretty late for a yogurt shop to be open. Don't you think? Like, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I guess we used to go to a yogurt shop that was open pretty late Yeah, in high school. Late. Yeah. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock though. Mm-hmm. Isn't there like a law though? You can't have like people under 18 working past us like 10 o'clock or something. Though? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Maybe there are now. Yeah. Maybe but, not at the time. Huh. Cause I, I know there was a, when I was working in retail in, uh, in high school and stuff, I know there was like a law. You can't work past 10, 10 o'clock PM. So it's interesting that these two were working, you know, past 10 o'clock to almost 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. At this time, the only customers in the front of the shop were these two men. Sarah and Amy Ayers got to the shop that night around 11 to help the older girls close up. After Sarah and Amy arrived, they locked the door and put up a closed sign. The two men in the booth were still in the shop. Their policy was to lock the door after 11 p.m. so that new customers wouldn't come in, but customers could you know, stay inside until they were done. Around 11, the no sale button was pushed on the register, meaning that the cash register was opened, but there was no sale taking place. And then somewhere between then and midnight, all four girls were forced into the storage area in the back of the shop. They were stripped of their clothes, completely naked. Sarah's hands were tied together behind her back with a pair of underwear belonging to another one of the girls, and she was gagged with an item of clothing and then raped. Eliza's hands were tied behind her back as well, and she was also gagged with her clothing. Amy had a cloth tied around her neck. She was strangled and raped. The girls were forced onto their knees and shot in the back of the head, execution style, and their bodies were stacked up on top of each other in the storage room. The first bullet had missed Amy's brain, so at some point she was shot again with a thirty-eight caliber gun. Yeah, because the other bullets uh, that were shot was actually from a twenty-two caliber. So there were two different types of guns that were used in this execution-style killing. So scary. It's really, really sad, too, because Amy, the first shot to her did not kill her, so she was still alive in some capacity, and mm-hmm. to go through you know, all of that to then be shot to then be shot again for a 13 year old girl is just extremely sad. Yeah. It's really unfathomable, but the second bullet hit her brain and exited out through her cheek. Now, of course, because there were two guns used at least that probably means that there were at least two killers. Cause why would somebody use one gun? You know, if it was the same person that killed all of them, why would they use two different guns? I mean, Maybe they just had two with them or had one as backup. Right. I don't know. Yeah. About $540 was stolen from the register, but a bank bag under the register with money inside was not touched. Because I think first things you think about is robbery. Like this was Mm -hmm. an armed robbery. They cased the yogurt shop to then steal money. money Could they possibly have at a yogurt shop? Not much. I mean, maybe a thousand or two in cash. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe. And also, if you're planning to, you know, most armed robberies don't end in execution style killing, especially of teenage, yeah, you know, that's a good girls. Point. Like, I mean, it, it doesn't really fit the profile of a an armed robbery uh, on first glance, that's for sure. And then what the killers did next is is just shocking. They poured lighter fluid over styrofoam cups, lit them on fire, and then tossed them in the back room. 
They then ran out a back entrance, assuming the fire would cover up any evidence that they left behind. The key to the front door of the shop also was never removed. The last customers inside the shop had obviously murdered the girls. Around midnight, an officer on patrol near North Cross Mall saw smoke emanating from around the strip mall. And then he saw that I can't believe it's yogurt was engulfed in flames. He then called in the fire department and almost 50 firefighters arrived within minutes. The firefighters rushed inside the shop to put out the fire using high powered fire hoses to control the flames using hundreds of gallons of water. And none of them thought that they would be stumbling upon a gruesome murder scene. So there was absolutely no effort to preserve any evidence because at first thought, you know, you see a restaurant or, you know, a place like this on fire. You think something in the kitchen must have happened. Mm. This is just a kitchen fire. So that's what they're, you know, going in thinking. And unfortunately this wasn't the case. So once inside, one of the firefighters went to the back of the shop to check out the storage area. And that's when he saw a foot sticking out of the doorway. And that's when he discovered the bodies of 15-year-old Sarah, 17-year-old Jennifer, and 17-year-old Eliza. That's so sad. And in interviews that I saw, they literally had no idea that they were in there. Like At one point, they said that they might have even been stepping on top of them when they first went in because they had, I mean, they had no idea that, I mean, that's like the last thing that you would think to find in a yogurt shop, I feel like. Why though? It's so weird. Why wouldn't people be in a yogurt shop? People run the yogurt shop. I'm saying murdered, like murdered individuals in a yogurt shop. Well, if like, it's on fire, wouldn't you be like, let's check for people? Yeah, that is true. Before stepping on them. Yeah, that is true. Know. That's a good point. Which I guess we don't even know for sure if they actually did that. Or you said you heard it. In yeah, an they said. Yeah, one of the firefighters that responded to it the said hell? that they. Well, they didn't. They couldn't see the you know the ground and stuff. I mean, they're going in. There's smoke everywhere, so can't really. Mm. I guess within a few minutes of finding the other girl's bodies, they found 13 year old Amy lying near the bathrooms. Amy was still alive, but barely it's likely that Amy was actually able to roll off of the stack of bodies that she was on and then crawl several feet before collapsing. Amy had severe burns over 25 to 30% of her body and she died shortly after being found. Oh damn. That's so sad. Eliza, Sarah, and Jennifer were stacked in the storage room. Their bodies were blackened from the fire and their skin was burned nearly to the bone. One of the girls had an ice cream scoop placed between her spread legs. What? Oh my God. That is disgusting. I mean, we know that they were raped and they were clearly sexually assaulted as well uh, in other ways. So it's just. That is so disturbing. It really is. Jennifer ended up next to the two other girls on the floor. Her body may have fallen when Amy pulled herself down or the high powered fire hoses used to put out the fire could have knocked her body down as well. So they kind of unraveled from the stack. So we know that at least two of the girls had been raped because there was a DNA sample done for Amy through a vaginal swab. And there were also five hairs found on the girls bodies or clothing. The case really erupted in the media and became one of the most high profile cases in Texas history. Yeah. I mean, it, obviously this is insane. Like you never hear about something like this happening. Mm -hmm. I mean, a bunch of teenage girls closing down the yogurt shop for the night, like in, in a place where this, you know, something like this had never really happened before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a relatively safe place and all of a sudden four girls are dead. Yeah. And the residents are feeling super panicked as well because this person is still on the loose or these people. Yeah. They got away. Yeah. Are they going to do this again? Do you have to worry about your daughter or maybe even your son who's working right. out at night? 
closing stores. Right. I would be scared. You never know if this is going to turn into like a serial offender where mm. they start going to multiple places. And I mean, we were, we were kind of talking about this earlier before, mm. but like the, the whole idea of, you know, if you go into, especially like a restaurant or somewhere where, you know, a fire is not all that uncommon. And, you know, if you commit a murder in a place like that, then, you know, it seems relatively easy to just light it on fire in order to destroy the evidence. It's such a kind of a surefire way to get rid of it all. Yeah. I mean, definitely sure fire. Yeah, sure fire for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm surprised. We were saying we're surprised that more people don't do this to destroy evidence, even if it's not in a kitchen or a restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Just crime scenes in general. Um, not that I'm encouraging anyone to do that, but I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often where crime scenes are completely torched or covered in gasoline because that you know removes DNA and fingerprints, I believe. Yeah. Or makes it a lot harder to see them. Well, really not only that. With the crime scene and then you light it on fire, you know, then right. there's nothing left. Well, yeah. And then on top of that, after it's already been burned in the fire, you have firefighters putting the fire out and the mm-hmm. amount of water that gets drenched on it, that destroys yeah, evidence in the does. scene as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm honestly surprised that doesn't happen more often. So the city of Austin was totally rocked about this going on. They were just really sad for the family and all the students at Lanier High School, you know, where the three girls had gone to school, were really upset at the loss of their classmates and everyone just wanted to know what had happened. The Austin Police Department at the time was very small and rarely saw any type of violent crime like this. I mean, nothing like this. There was nothing that they could do about the firefighters and fire hoses destroying the evidence either. But even after they found the bodies, officers involved in the investigation had no training or experience processing this type of crime scene. Well, if it never happens, then why would you train for it? You know, I mean, obviously you want to train for things that don't happen. But back, I mean, especially 20 plus years ago, it's just not something that they did. Detective John Jones was the first police officer to arrive. The scene wasn't locked down and many potential ways to collect evidence were ignored. Which is the first mistake. I mean, yeah, they really should have roped this off and really did a yeah. deep dive into it. But I mean, I guess they did do a good search. I don't know. So often these older cases, they just really were untrained. Uh, no one looked for fingerprints in the bathrooms, even though they did take fingerprints from the cash register drawer, which I guess is good. I guess they just assumed it was a robbery. And so they looked there, but why wouldn't you check the check everywhere? You know? Also, they found accelerant on styrofoam cups, but didn't look for traces of it on the girls' bodies. There were also full trash bags from that day, and the officers failed to look for any potential evidence in the trash. Which is like a no-brainer, right? Which is huge, because you go back to that strange guy that bought the soda. Right. That's like one of the biggest pieces that we wish we could have more information about is that Coke can. Like, if Mm -hmm. we could get our hands on the DNA in that Coke can, maybe we can figure out who who's behind this. Cause obviously that person had some role in this. Most likely things that were found in the storage room, such as shelves and mops that were kept in the storage room when the bodies were found were not actually processed for DNA. They ended up being dropped out in the alley outside the shop and likely ended up at the city dump. So that's really helpful. Items that had been melted by the fire, such as an aluminum ladder were not kept as evidence either. They were just thrown out And it almost took four hours for the Department of Public Safety crime scene investigators to arrive. During those four hours, police officers, firefighters, arson investigators, and paramedics continued to trample the scene. Investigators were quickly connected with Daryl Croft, 
and the older couple who had been in the yogurt shop shortly before closing time. These witnesses described the young man who had gone to the bathroom after buying a single can of soda, as well as the strange men sitting in the booth. On December 10th, four days after they were murdered, more than 1,500 people attended a memorial service for Eliza, Jennifer, Sarah, and Amy. The girls' autopsies were sealed by a judge on December 12th, 1991. Then on December 14th, 16-year-old Maurice Pierce was brought into police custody. They picked him up a few blocks away from the yogurt shop for having a 22 caliber handgun tucked into his pants. He was then questioned by Detective Hector Polanco of the Austin Police Department and was specifically asked about the murders that had taken place eight days before. Maurice said he had lent his gun to his friend, 15-year-old Forrest Welburn, and Forrest had been the one that murdered the girls in the yogurt shop. Forrest was then questioned, but he denied that he was involved in any of the murders. He told investigators that he was with Maurice and two other boys, 16-year-old Robert Burns, Springsteen Jr., and 17-year-old Michael James Scott around that time. Forrest claimed that the four of them had taken a trip to San Antonio in a stolen SUV. His name is Michael Scott. Yeah. I just had to note that. Yeah, it is. Police also gave Forrest a polygraph test, and he passed that. None of the physical evidence collected from the crime scene could be connected to the boys. And with no additional evidence, they were dismissed as suspects in the murders for now. Before we continue, we'd like to thank our last sponsors for today. So like I said, there were over 50 false confessions in this case, and it was very frustrating for the police to deal with that much bullshit, honestly. Although some of these confessions were never even investigated by the police, probably because they just did not have enough resources. I mean, there were over 340 suspects that they looked at. Just insane. Less than a month after the murders, a teenage girl and her boyfriend tried to confess to the crime as well, but that was proven to be false. God, these false confessions, why? Maybe people just wanted like notoriety because it was popular in Austin and they want to be known for something. And even if but it's why? a murder, I don't understand this. You want to go to jail? People at least, I don't get it. Why would you want to throw your life away by falsely confessing to a crime? It makes absolutely no sense. I mean, it happens in so many cases. It's shocking. People must have some sick thing where they want fame or attention no matter where it's from. Or like some people just are already like, I'm already screwed by the system. I'm already going to be in jail for a long time. So why not oh, yeah, try to falsely get something confess out of it. and get some fame? And hopefully people will remember me if, if I confess to this. But, but some of these people were not even inmates. They're just regular people that came in and turned themselves in for no reason. Yeah. And why would you want to be known for killing four teenage I girls? I don't know. It's, it's very odd. Like a teenage girl and her boyfriend. What, what is it? Some like bizarre fantasy that they're this Bonnie and Clyde or something. I don't know. Very weird. Some people are just crazy, man. Yeah, it's true. The world is yeah. crazy. There was also a man who was arrested in Mexico in 1992 who confessed after being tortured by a Mexican federal agent and he quickly recanted this confession. The detective that was suspected of coercing a lot of these confessions, I mean, there's got to be someone here. It's not just people coming forward. I feel like yeah. it's clear someone was trying to get anyone they could to fit the mold for this case. Yeah, I mean, they want to you know, provide justice in some way. And in this particular case, and in so many where there's literally no evidence, there's no trail, there's no leads, oftentimes what they'll do is they'll you know, try to get people to admit to it Mm -hmm. whether or not they're actually guilty of it or not. So Polanco was, you know, suspected of doing that. And he was removed from the case on March 23rd, 1992. Cause I mean, what are the chances there's that many people, even after the police continued to receive tips about the murders, the case went cold 
1996, Detective Paul Johnson of the Austin Police Department took over the case, and he went through all of the case files and started testing evidence. The public and the victim's families were frustrated with the lack of progress in the case and demanded answers from investigators. In early 1999, the bullets in the murders were tested against the handgun that was found on Maurice Pierce in 1991, and the ballistics showed that they weren't a match. So this was huge. Mm -hmm. And the police believed that Maurice may have suffered from some sort of mental illness. Detective Johnson wasn't convinced that Maurice and his friends weren't involved, and he was determined to prove that they were involved. Back in 1991, Forrest Welburn had said he was actually with Maurice, Michael Scott, and Robert Springsteen at the time of the murders. Though no evidence was found linking them to the murders, Detective Johnson considered them a promising lead. Michael Scott, who is now 25 years old, was brought in on September 9, 1999, and was interrogated for five days. After about 20 hours of interrogations, he actually confessed to the murders. During the tape interrogation, Michael said Maurice made him shoot one of the girls in the head. You want the truth, and you know what the truth is. You're having trouble with the memories of flashbacks. You know what happened. You're scared to tell it. I don't blame you. It's a horrible thing what you saw in there. Look, can I tell you what I keep seeing in my head? Tell us what you see in your head. I keep seeing your girl get shot. Right. I remember one girl screaming, terrified. Okay. I, I don't know if this is real or not, or if this is Michael's real. It's okay. You can present it to him any way you want, but it's real. Mike, look at me. You're remembering what happened. You were inside there, right? I don't. You're remembering what happened. I don't honestly remember going in the building. If you were in the building, you went in there with him. I don't believe that, Michael. You don't ever know it in there. And you know you were in there. Did you shoot any of those girls? No, sir. Then tell us what happened. What did those people do to those girls? You want to live with this the rest of your life? No, I don't. Then get it out right now. They're you over. They're the ones that shot the girls. Do it. What did you see happen? A gun. You ever seen that gun before? I'm not positive. Does that look like a gun you've seen before? It looks like a gun I've seen before, but I'm not positive. Is that the gun you shot somebody with, Mike? I don't. Is that the gun you walked up behind somebody with and shot in the head? Is that the one? Talk to me, Mike. Yes, you did that, didn't you? Yes, sir. We've just opened some more doors, haven't we, Mike? Not really. You sure? Yes, sir. What's crazy is that during the interrogation, a detective is seen holding a gun up to Michael's head, pretty much forcing a confession from him. And how stupid of him. He knows that there's a camera in there. Why would yeah. you do that? This yeah. I had like completely lost it. I mean, it's like they, they had, they obviously felt like these guys were guilty and maybe they were, I mean, but to put a gun to someone's head to force a confession is obviously not how the system works at all. Yeah, absolutely not. The next day on September 15th, 24-year-old Robert Springsteen was picked up in Charleston, West Virginia and interrogated for five hours. Some of Robert's interrogation was also filmed and Detective Ron Lara did most of the questioning, along with the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms federal agent Chuck Meyer. And in that video, the detectives are seen yelling at Robert, sometimes within inches of his face. The problem is we got to get one of our options. I cannot give you any more truth than I've already given where do we go from here? Why can't you? Because you're going to dig yourself into that thing? Well, you're already there. You've already dug the hole. The hole's there. 
I don't know. That's what I keep telling you guys. I mean, my God, this was seven years ago. But this is one of the most significant things that ever happened in your life. That's what I keep trying to explain to you. If I was there and I partook in this, I would remember these things. And you do remember these things. No, I don't. No, I do not. Now, you're the coldest guy I've ever talked to in my life. Are you a cold-blooded murderer? No, sir, I'm not. I, I think you are. I think Maurice is absolutely true about you. Well, then let's You're the take whatever actions we need to take. Pardon me? Then let's take whatever actions we need to take. If that's what you believe, and that's where you think this case needs to go, then let's go there. We don't want to go there. But I'm doing everything I can and have exceeded my limits of helping you guys. Where do we go now? And after so many hours of being yelled at, he eventually confessed to the murders and to raping 13-year-old Amy Ayers. He provided details about the crimes, but many of these details were either mixed up, like which gun was used to shoot Amy first, and others just didn't fit the case at all. The police believe that the original plan was for three of the boys to rob the yogurt shop while the four stayed in the getaway car, but something must have gone wrong and they ended up murdering the four girls instead. Detective Johnson didn't consult with Detective Polanco, who had initially interrogated the boys in 1991. But it's not clear if that would have helped considering Detective Polanco's reputation for coercing false confessions. In a 1988 rape case, he got a detailed confession from Christopher Okoa that was used to convict him and his friend Richard Danziger. But both men were later proven innocent, even though they supposedly provided information only the perpetrator would know. Since Detective Polanco was the one who questioned the boys first, whatever information was provided at the time may have been completely made up. Certain interrogation tactics have been proven to cause false confessions, even in people who start out confident that they're innocent. On October 6, 1999, nearly eight years after the murders, police arrested Maurice Pierce finally in Louisville, Texas. And they also arrested Robert Springsteen in Charleston, West Virginia. They also arrested 25-year-old Michael Scott in the Austin area and 23-year-old Forrest Walborn in Lockhart, Texas. Blood samples and hair samples were taken from these four men, and by the end of December 1999, Robert, Michael, and Maurice were all indicted. But two grand juries failed to indict Forrest, and the charges against him were dropped in June of 2000. Michael and Robert recanted their confessions and claimed that they had been manipulated into confessing by Detective Johnson, and the trial for Robert Springsteen had started in early spring of 2001, and he was charged with Amy's murder. The prosecution was seeking the death penalty. During the trial, portions of Robert's interrogations were shown to the jury. Dr. Richard Offshe, who is a social psychology professor, testified about the illegal tactics used by the police that resulted in false confessions. But he was blocked on giving his opinion on whether or not the tape that was shown actually showed that Robert had been coerced. But when talking to the media, Dr. Offshe said that without a doubt, the tactics used to interrogate Robert were the same tactics that led to a false confession in the past. Also, the defense was only allowed to mention two out of the 50 false confessions throughout the years, and they were not allowed to bring up the possibility that serial killer Kenneth McDuff may have been responsible. Seems kind of ridiculous. Why weren't they able to bring that up? That's huge in this case that there were 50 false confessions. I feel like that's information the jury should know. Yeah, seriously. A map was actually found inside Kenneth McDuff's car, and it had directions to within three blocks of the yogurt shop. And on December 29th, 1991, 23 days after the murders, Kenneth had kidnapped 28-year-old Colleen Reed from an Austin car wash. Him and an accomplice murdered Colleen then soon after. There was also a witness that claimed she saw him at the mall the night of the murders. 
Kenneth McDuff was actually in prison in Texas for raping and murdering teenage girls in the 1960s and was sentenced to death. McDuff ended up being one of the 127 convicted murderers who was paroled in 1989 because of prison overcrowding. And within days of his release, he began killing women and girls in Texas all over again. He had been ruled out by investigators, but before his execution in 1998, Kenneth told them that if he had murdered the girls, he would admit to it like he had admitted to all of his other murders. Yeah, I mean, he was really proud of it. Yeah, so. as most serial killers are. He would have said something if he did it. He had nothing to lose at that yeah. point. So. Yeah, exactly. Why not? Highly unlikely it was him. Admit to it. Yeah. But in the trial, the prosecution was allowed to submit Michael Scott's confession as evidence, though this may have violated Robert's right to cross-examination of all witnesses against him. Jurors were also shown graphic pictures of the murder scene over and over throughout the trial. Oh, yeah. And no doubt they were obviously traumatized by these pictures. Several of the jurors even cried or recoiled in their seats when they saw them. Sure, it was horrible. But Robert was found guilty and sentenced to death ultimately. Michael Scott's trial wasn't until 2002, and it went very similarly to Robert's. Robert's confession was also used against Michael during the trial. He was found guilty of murder on September 22, 2002, and sentenced to life in prison. Daryl Croft and the older couple in the yogurt shop on that night of the murders were not called to be witnesses in either trial. That's ridiculous. Just what this the whole thing got botched so bad. Yeah, so bad. From start to finish. So bad. The evidence presented in both trials by the prosecution relied on the confessions each man had made after the hours of interrogations, which is obviously not going to hold up. Mm-mm. Maurice Pierce never even went to trial. The charges against him were dropped on January 28, 2003 for lack of evidence. Wow. And at this point, he had been in prison for more than three years. Robert and Michael ended up appealing their verdicts. And on May 25, 2006, Robert's conviction was overturned because Michael's confession had been used as evidence from the prosecution. On June 6, 2007, Michael's conviction was overturned because Robert's confession was used against him. Jeez. Mess. And then their cases went back to the prosecutors to consider retrials, which is not, not going to happen. Mm-mm. For years, analysts tried to, to extract a DNA profile from the sample that was taken from Amy's body. DNA testing made remarkable progress in the recent decades. If you're into true crime, you know this. You know It's gotten just so, so much better. And in March of 2008, it was revealed that analysts were able to extract a new kind of DNA strand called Y-STR. I think it's just a Y strand, yeah. This strand is found in males only and is shared by fathers, sons, and uncles in the family. This DNA did not match Maurice, Forrest, Michael, or Robert and didn't match any of the males in their families either. Investigators did not rule out the possibility that there could have been a fifth accomplice or that the DNA didn't belong to any of the murderers. In June of 2009, defense attorneys revealed that the same DNA profile was found on one of the other girls, and an expert for the prosecution agreed that both DNA samples were from the same unidentified man that did not match the other four accused men. The prosecutors went on to test more than 100 men and came up with nothing. They tested all known acquaintances of the four men, employees at the medical examiner's office, even everyone that had stepped foot into the crime scene. And any customers that they could identify who were in the yogurt shop on the day of the murders were tested as well. They even used yearbooks from the girls' schools to find potential classmates of theirs. And then they would conduct covert operations in order to gather DNA samples from each one. In order to get the samples, they would even pick up cigarette butts and thrown out drink containers from anyone 
who could have had any contact with the four murdered girls. The investigation was extremely exhaustive, time-consuming, and very expensive. But at this point, the prosecutors were determined to find the source of this mystery DNA. The retrial of Michael Scott was scheduled to start on July 6, 2009. But in late June, District Attorney Rosemary Lemberg announced that they would not pursue retrial until the unknown male suspect was identified. Michael and Robert then were released from prison on personal bonds, and in 2011, the lead defense attorney for Michael Scott, Carlos Garcia, was re-examining the case. He was organizing the crime scene photos when he noticed something. In a picture of the inside of the yogurt shop, all of the chairs were stacked on the tables, and one chair was stacked on the table for each booth. The napkin dispensers were all full, but there was one booth that had no chair on top and an empty napkin dispenser. This was the same booth that a witness had said the two men acting strangely were sitting at. Which is kind of weird, I guess. I mean, every it, when you look at the photo, it does look kind of strange that there's just this one booth that isn't like closed down. Mm-hmm. But I guess that does prove, in fact, that there was you know somebody at that table when they were closing up the shop. Mm-hmm. Or else they would have put the chairs up there. Right. In 2017, investigators on the case entered the DNA profile they found on Amy into a database of YSTR DNA strains. This database was run by the University of Central Florida's National Center for Forensic Science, and they actually got a match. Travis County Prosecutor Efrain De La Fuente called the family members of the murder girls about this huge break in the case. On March 9, 2017, investigators sent a grand jury subpoena to the University of Central Florida in order to find out where this matching DNA had come from. And what they actually learned is that a forensic analyst at the FBI had actually submitted the matching DNA. So the FBI was the one that actually came back with this matching DNA. And the Austin Police Department was like, great, the FBI, you know, they're going to help us out. And they scheduled a conference call and the investigators prepared to move forward with this new promising lead because they're like, all right, the FBI is going to give us something good. I mean, we can trust what they're going to give us. However, the FBI said the DNA was submitted for testing purposes only in order to help scientists learn more about this YSTR profile. And they claim none of the samples they submitted could be matched to an individual, which it's true that thousands of men could share this particular DNA strand, but familial DNA has been an effective way to solve high-profile cases in the past. The FBI pointed to a federal law from 1994 that created a national forensics database. The law said that the database would be used by law enforcement to investigate cases with the requirement that the identity of the anonymous donors be kept confidential and not released to other law enforcement agencies. However, the Austin Police Department believed it was legal for the FBI to share the source of this matching DNA and argued that in this case, the source could be revealed. I mean, it could potentially solve this case. So why wouldn't they give it to them? The FBI, though, stood their ground and said, no, we're not going to give it to you because the law clearly states that the DNA could be linked to hundreds or thousands of men, not one individual, and that the identity of the donor would not be revealed. And over the next three years, the two law enforcement agencies argued back and forth about the federal law, privacy protections, and the science involved in DNA analysis, saying that it could absolutely help their investigation, while the FBI was saying we legally can't. On February 4th, 2020, Congressman Michael McCall, who represents Texas 10th District, including Austin, actually sent a letter to the FBI's laboratory division urging them to release the DNA source. Travis County prosecutors are even considering taking the drastic step of using a subpoena to get the information, but this would take a lot of time and money that they don't have. So this has really made people question the use of familial DNA. Should it be something that we use? Um, You know, should it be something that's legal? Is it ethical? 
It's been highly debated among law enforcement, scientists, judges, and the general public. In December of 2010, Maurice Pierce was in an altercation with the Austin police during a traffic stop, and he ended up stabbing the officer in the neck and was shot dead. Ultimately, the answers to this case are held by this familial DNA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people are very against using this in order to help solve cases, but at the same time, it's been extremely helpful in solving a lot of different cases. I mean, in the most recent years, familial DNA has been used to catch multiple serial killers, including the Grim Sleeper or Lonnie Franklin Jr., as well as the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. Uh, it's probably the biggest one, most you know, publicized use of it. Exactly. So, you know, I think, I think there is a, a role for familial DNA to play, and I think it's going to be needed in the future. I mean... We, we need to be able to access this information. I mean, if it's out there, why not use it? You know, I, I get the privacy concerns and all that, but if it's going to help us keep serial killers under control, like yeah. why not? But at the end of the day, the people that were most affected by these killers, whoever they are, was the families. I mean, they're yeah. super frustrated with, with all of this. I mean, from the very beginning with the scene being completely botched and not preserved to the false confessions and just the, Horrible police work done by the Austin Police Department, honestly. Yeah, terrible. And the withholding of evidence. I mean, knowing that there's this DNA out there and the FBI won't give it to us, won't give us a source. I mean, that's got to be so angering. I know some of the parents just have given up all hope in the criminal justice system altogether and the courts and, and all of it. I just don't understand why. I really don't. Like, I know they'll make excuses, but it doesn't really make sense to me. I know there's, I guess you're trying to protect privacy, but... I think you lose all privacy when you commit a crime. If your DNA is found somewhere, why can't that, if it's going to help solve a case, I really right. don't care about. And if you've got nothing privacy. to hide, what's the big deal right. of them question, like police bringing you in to yeah. question you about, or at least telling the family, the name of the family or something that, you know, the strand matches to. Right. It's weird. Well, the FBI claims that this evidence is not as significant to the case as the Austin police department believes and remains mm. firm that releasing the source of the DNA is against federal law. So, I mean, okay. maybe they just have it narrowed down to like a particular family line. They don't know any more than that, but even that, I mean, the police could work off of that and try to figure out who it is. Do you think they're protecting someone? Possibly. I mean, you never know. There could always be some type of cover up involved in it, but I think, I, I think there's still a chance that it could have been, you know, Maurice, honestly, mm -hmm. I think Maurice could have definitely did something like this and uh, the three other guys. So could they at least confirm if the DNA is in the same family as those, any of those guys or did they? No, we don't know any of that. Yeah. We don't, we oh. have no clue. So it could be. And these guys are all out of jail. They're walking free. They're living their life and they could have been involved in the slaying of these four teenage girls. I and mean, no one's serving time for it. Nobody's serving How time. Sad. Literally Texas. Did what a waste of life. It's super, super sad. Absolutely. Just like right at that age, you know, about yeah, to go just into the real world. Started. Yeah. First job. It's terrible. I just don't understand the motive behind this though. Whoever did it. I'm just like, what was the purpose of this? Why do this at all? Maybe it was just some sick fantasy to like trap four girls. Maybe they knew that these four girls closed up and it would be an opportunity and they could yeah. just, you know, take advantage of them, scare them. I honestly think it was the four guys, because if you think about what type of person would, would do this, if it was four, you know, young criminals and, you know, they're rolling around with guns, clearly that, you know, if you're rolling around with a gun, it's, 
because you're intending to shoot somebody Mm -hmm. or, you know, somebody's going to shoot at you. So you're going to return fire to them. The fact that they're walking free, I can't even imagine what those family members feel. But it is hard without solid evidence. That's the thing. There's a DNA profile didn't come back to any of them. Yeah. But then again, the scene was so fucked up and there was, Mm -hmm. you know, a mess. So it could, for all we know, this hidden source of DNA could just be like somebody randomly who is involved or Mm -hmm. walked through the, you know, happened to touch them. It could be a medical examiner person. I mean, we have no idea. Such a mess. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate that, I don't know if there will ever be, you know, justice for, for these four girls, which is really sad to think about, yeah, but I don't know. You'll have to let us know what you think though out there, mm-hmm. but, but we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the Malhar podcast. If you did, we really appreciate it. If you headed over to Apple podcasts and subscribe to us over there and follow us on uh, Spotify, if you haven't already, because if you're only watching us on YouTube, unfortunately it's not counted into the podcast performance. So We'd really appreciate that. But until then, stay safe. And stay woke.